Welcome to Discovering the Law. My name is Lucy Rivera, and today we are going to learn about contracts and about deal making. To make that special show, today we have attorney Sean Hoyt. Sean started his career at Choate, Hole and Stewart, this big law firm in Boston, and is currently the vice president of commercial contracts and deals for a technology company in Boston. Sean, welcome. I'm very happy to be here, Lucy. It's inspiring to me that you've been educating people about the law for over 10 years, and it's an honor to be here with you and as part of that mission. Thank you kindly, Sean, for your words, kind words. And uh, so please talk to us about, about your expertise in contract law and deal making. One thing to note is that contracts are critically important to almost every company. Most companies need contracts to sell their product or service. They also need contracts to buy products or services from other suppliers to run their business. And they need contracts to partner and collaborate with other companies for marketing or promotion of what they do, their products and services. There are other companies that have more specialized types of contracts, like if you had a real estate company that bought or sold or leased real estate, or if you had a financial services company that borrowed or lent money. Um, but most companies have the basic kind of contracts. In my role, I'm responsible for managing all of the contracts on what we call the commercial side of the business. And that means contracts with customers, contracts with suppliers, and contracts with partners. And in my, with, with my company, we do thousands of those a year. And what we're looking for is first we define upfront what, what issues are most important to our company and therefore what terms and conditions need to be present in all of our contracts. Then when contracts get sent to us for a review, we'll look at them to see if those terms and conditions are present. If they're not, we'll negotiate them in. Then we move to signature and we want to get that whole process done really as efficiently as we can. And throughout all of that, we're trying to walk a balancing act because on one level, we want the contract to help us grow, grow the business and increase revenue. Yet at the same time, we want the contract to help protect the company from risk. And while we're doing all of that, we're trying to figure out, hey, how do we get this done as efficiently and as quickly as possible? And uh, to that end, Sean, what are the elements of a contract? The first element of a contract is that some, someone needs to make an offer. Someone needs to offer to provide a product or service to another party or to request a product or service from someone else. So it starts with an offer. That offer needs to be accepted by the other party. They need to agree, yes, I want your product or service, or yes, I'm willing to provide you a product or service. Then they need to agree on what the exchange of value will be. One, one party's doing something, one party's paying something, or it could look different. But the key is, the legal term is consideration. You need to make sure someone's getting, everyone's getting something out of the contract. Then you look at the parties and you say, okay, are these parties able to enter into a contract? First, do they have capacity? Are they old enough and do they have the mental capacity to be able to enter into a contract? If you had a five-year-old child, they wouldn't be able to enter into a valid contract, for example. And then you want to look at authority. So if it's a company, for example, if you had a, 
a senior person, like a vice president, they would have the authority to be able to enter into a, a contract. But if you had an intern who had just started at the company and was very junior, they wouldn't have the authority at the company to enter into that contract. So you need an offer, an acceptance for an exchange of value by parties who have the capacity and the authority to enter into that contract. I remember that now, interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but what does a contract need to have in order to be valid and enforceable? So once you have all of these elements, you need to prove them. And that's typically done through a written document. And in the traditionally, the written document was a piece of paper that you printed out, usually multiple copies, so everyone could kind of walk home with, with a copy, and you'd print them out, and people would sign them. Mm -hmm. Everyone would sign the, the copies, and then everyone would have their own physical copy. If there was a dispute, they would take that physical copy and bring it into court. Mm -hmm. That's the way that it worked for for a long time. Um, and how have contracts evolved, in your opinion, uh, to adapt to technology and to the times? Yeah, what I just described in terms of how, how that used to work, that has changed dramatically over time with the advent of technology. Until just a few years ago, for example, if you went to a closing for like to buy a house, mm -hmm. you'd walk in and have a stack of paper that was this big and you'd sign four copies of every document and then they'd collate them out and everyone would walk away with their physical copies, but it just doesn't work that way anymore. Now what happens is usually documents are, um, they're put into electronic format and then the document is distributed electronically. It might be through email, it might be through some kind of secure messaging service. And increasingly, the document's even being signed electronically through an electronic signature tool. DocuSign is typically the most well-known. And at the end of the day, you don't walk out with a physical copy of your contract. You, you, walk, you, you walk away with a file that's sent to you, and you download it. And that's your contract. Okay. Electronic document, electronically signed. Now, increasingly, it's actually moving even further into what I call um, click wrap contracts. And this is where, and it's called that because you click into them. So if you go to any website these days, and if, they're, if you're purchasing something on the website, at some point you're going to have to, you're going to be presented with terms and conditions that said to use this website or to purchase this product or service, here are the terms and conditions. You might have to scroll through them to, to show that you've read them all. And at the end, you either click agree or you take some action um, that indicates that, yes, I accepted these terms and conditions. And that's binding to produce a contract. And there's records created of that um, electronically on the website. So later, if you needed to go in and prove that, yes, that contract existed, you could go in and get the, the electronic evidence that the terms were presented and that they were accepted. Um, interesting. So in general, what terms can be covered in a contract? So if you look at most contracts, they're going to cover a very similar set of points. First of all, you're going to identify who are the parties to the contract. If it's individuals, that's not hard. But if it's companies, it's important because many companies have multiple corporate entities, maybe a corporations, LLCs. And it's important to make sure you understand which of these entities am I contracting with because that's the only entity that's going to be legally responsible to perform the contract. And that's going to be the only entity that's legally responsible to you know, pay out any damages that it might owe as a result of the contract. So you want to identify clearly 
each party by name, usually by address, and if it's a company, by kind of their corporate ID number. So you know which one you're contracting with. Next, you want to identify what's the subject matter of this contract. What, are, what service or product is being provided? What amount of money is being paid and when? And you want to be specific, especially with the product. Are there specifications that go with it? Is there a list of what's included in the contract? Is there a list of the different modules or parts that go with it? And then on the payment, um, not only how much is being paid, but when. And then is it being paid by check, by electronic transfer? If you can get all these details in the contract up front, you can avoid a lot of disputes later on. Okay, so now you've documented what's going to be provided and what's going to be paid. And then you, the next topic would typically be, is, is any party making any promises in connection with the contract? And these are called representations or warranties. And a representation would be, as you would say, you would promise that you had done something. Like, I promise that I've run virus testing on this piece of software. Or I promise that I've put it through acceptance testing and it passed. A warranty would be a promise to, in the future, to say, if this goes wrong, I warrant that I'll fix it. Um, or I'll warrant that it will continue to comply with industry standards. So you'll have representations and warranties in the contract. Then you get into, okay, well, what happens if those representations and warranties don't prove to be true? What are the remedies of the parties? Do you have a right to get it fixed? Do you have a right to file a claim? The contract should spell all that out. And what process do you have to go through along the way? And then lastly, one more point, is that typically it'll tell you how do you terminate the contract? Because contracts don't usually go on forever. And so is, will it terminate automatically after a certain amount of time? Or will it terminate upon an event, um, such as one party decides, I'm going to give you notice that I don't want to continue on with this contract anymore? Um, thank you, Sean. Today, we are learning about contracts and about deals from attorney Sean Hoyt, who is currently the vice president and deal-making counsel for a software company in Boston. My name is Lucy Rivera, and this episode will be viewed at www.discoveringthelaw.com. Sean, uh, now tell us, in particularly, like for technology contracts, what are the um, issues that are covered? So these days, in technology contracts, the biggest issue has become data. Um, data privacy and data security have become the most important issue, typically, with technology. So in order to make technology work, someone's very likely going to provide personal data about themselves, their customers, employees. And that data can subject the parties to a lot of liability if it's not kept private and secure. If your viewers want to learn more about this, we've act you and I have actually done an episode on this together in Discovering the Law. So there's an episode they can go back and watch about data privacy. So I won't get into the details here. But I'll say that the contract will spend a lot of time talking about what the obligations of the parties are around privacy and security. They'll also get into the remedies if there's a data breach. That's the worst case scenario. That's what people are really concerned about. Let's say somehow this data gets out into the public and now there's, a, um, there's lawsuits that are filed or um, angry customers who cancel and you know, what are the remedies for that? 
There'll also be provisions about ownership. So there's two, two types of ownerships. Number one is intellectual property. Who owns the software? Who owns improvements to the software? Who owns inventions or patents that get created? But then also increasingly, you need to look at data. There'll be data that exists when the contract starts and you know, whoever had it before will continue to own it. But what about new data? Let's say in the course of the contract, you, you learn new insights. Machine learning and AI, it comes up really critical here because you may generate new insights through the data you already have or the data you generate during the contract. That data has value. It can be the basis of a new product or service. It can be you can sell that data for certain purposes and, and monetize it. So knowing who has rights to that data and who owns it is critically important. Um, then you'll typically get into um, disputes. What happens if there's a breach? What happens if there's a dispute? Who owns, you know, what are the parties' obligations to each other? And is their liability limited in any way? One of the most frequently disputed issues is the limitation of liability clause, saying, is my liability unlimited? Or are we agreeing that between us, I'm only liable up to some cap? That's a very common provision that will get negotiated. And finally, just like with the other general contracts I talked about, termination is a, is a big issue. Um, when can each party terminate? Does, is it only when there's a breach, or can they terminate for convenience? And if they do terminate, what do they owe? <clears throat> um, Sean, what would be the most contested issues in a technology contract today? Um, contested issues, I think, really do come down to um, to data, like I mentioned before. I think that's, that, that's the critical one. Um, but really, at the end of the day, I think with technology contracts, you really kind of need to get into and understand, like, what, do people, what are people most concerned about? And oftentimes, as I approach a negotiation, I, you'll talk to the people and say, you know, what are, the, what are the biggest issues for you? What are you most concerned about? And by asking some of those open-ended questions, you'll, you'll learn that people sometimes are concerned about things you didn't think they were concerned about. And they're not really concerned about other things that you thought for sure they'd be concerned about. And that can create really interesting avenues for negotiation. Um, Sean, now let's get to the very sexy part of contracts. What have you found to be the most successful techniques when negotiating a contract? I'll start with what I was just mentioning, which is one thing I realized early in my career as a negotiator is that different parties value different points in different ways. So I'll give you an example to make this clear. Let's say we're talking about the payment of money for a product or service. For one party, the most important thing might be, I need that cash soon. Um, and I'm willing to accept less cash, for example, is if I can get it paid within 15 days. The other party may have the exact opposite approach. They might say, you know what, like I've got plenty of money. I don't mind when I pay it. What's most important to me is the amount of that payment, either making it as big as possible or as small as possible. And I've seen plenty of situations in which you can actually have a win-win by having a situation where one party gets the money faster and then the other party either pays more or less, depending on their side of the contract, and everybody's happy. Um, so looking for those, you know, unlocking kind of incremental value 
by finding areas where the parties have different priorities. So that's, that's one key factor for success. Another that I found over time relates to um, taking disputes and st stopping to ask a question to say, give me a specific example of what you're concerned about. Sometimes you'll be arguing about a point and I'll make assumptions about what the other party's concern is. But until I ask them, I don't know. And sometimes just by asking that question, can you give me a specific example of what you're concerned about? They'll tell me a story about something the bad that's happened to their company in the past, and they want to make sure that doesn't get repeated. Mm. And then I realize that what they're concerned about is very different than what I thought they were concerned about. And I can solve their problem in a really easy way that instantly creates a, a way to get resolution on the issue. So that's a very powerful um, tool in negotiation, which is just to ask those questions and ask for specific examples. Alternatively, sometimes when you're trying to make your own point, rather than just talking in legal language and um, trying to explain it from a technical, like a legal perspective, giving a, a concrete example can make it seem very innocuous. So I have negotiations all the time about who's going to be liable if there's a data breach. And our customers will often say, you know, you're the software provider. If there's any data breach, you need to be responsible for it. And I say, well, if we do something wrong and our software doesn't work or our security protocols fail, I, I agree entirely with you. But what happens if the security breach happens because something one of your employees does? These days, we all get sent these emails, these phishing emails that are trying to get us to click on a malicious link. Well, what if one of your employees falls for one of those when they're using the software and then a malicious actor gets in through their password and all of a sudden gets access to the, the personal data in the system? That had nothing to do with us or our software. It was because one of your employees failed to do what they were supposed to and trained to do. So in that case, I tell the customer, it would be logical that you would assume responsibility in that case. And usually they'll say, okay, that's right. That's a good example. We'll carve out that scenario. And then all of a sudden, I'm not taking on full and strict liability. I'm sharing it with my customer. Well, so that's, that's another successful strategy that I've used. Sean, you make it sound so smooth. <laughs> but what happens when something goes wrong? What happens when someone is upset about performance of the contract? So when something goes wrong, the thing that I realized over time is they usually don't pick up the contract first. When something goes wrong, the first thing they do is they go and they call someone that they know at, on the other side. And they say, I'm upset about this. Fix this. And if you have a good, if you have strong customer service and you have a really a commitment to making good on your products or services, oftentimes you'll never end up with the contract. You solve it at a customer level. And that's, frankly, the most powerful way to do it because then you retain loyal customers who say, yeah, a problem came up, but then this company stepped in and fixed it. You only usually have to go to the contract when you didn't provide good service. You aren't responsive to the customer. You're not willing to step up and fix it. Then they're like, all right, I don't have any other choice. So they pull out the contract and they start reading it. And the contract will usually say they have to go through some process. First, they have to notify you and give you a, a, a formal warning of breach. And oftentimes, they have to give you time to what they call cure it, which means you have an opportunity to remedy it. If the other party 
has a right to remedy and they don't, okay, well then you can pursue your remedies. The contract might say you can go to court, the contract might say you have to go through arbitration, but typically the contract will specify where you go to get that relief. Um, Sean, so what, uh, what improvements would you, would you suggest to make this process that you're alluding to easier? Yeah. One thing is that, um, and this is really just a practice point for people, is that I think people don't spend enough time preparing. Um, one of the things that I really try to stress within you know, the people that I work with is before we have a critical call on a critical contact, cr contract, let's get on the phone internally. Let's understand who are we talking to? What are their roles? What do they each care about? Have they been burned in the past? Like what are their, the things they're most afraid of? And then what are our roles gonna be? Yeah. So we're not stumbling over each other in the, in, the, in the call. And then what issues do we think are gonna come up in the, in the call? And can we prepare in advance so we have compromises ready? So that when an issue comes up, we don't have to say, uh, I'll have to think about that and get back to you, which isn't a very satisfying response. Instead, you'll say, you know what, I thought about that and I have an idea. What if we could do X? Would that, would that address your concern? And if you can do that on the call because you're prepared, it's a great way to, to kind of handle these issues. Another thing that I suggest for companies is that they try as much as possible to avoid what we call the battle of the forms. In contracts, everyone's trying to create their own template. Like I've got my template for this contract, you've got your template, and we're gonna fight about whose template we're gonna use. I really think the industry as a whole would benefit from having industry standard templates mm -hmm. that you, know, you get a group of a bipartisan group of people together, you agree that hey, 99% of the times this is what people care about, let's say with a non-disclosure agreement, and then you have an industry standard template that everyone can just use. We spend so much time arguing over whose form are we gonna use, <laughs> and then negotiating back and forth on my form versus your form. Whereas if there was a standard one, it would make life so much more efficient. Thank you, Sean. This has been extremely illustrative and interesting. We have one minute left. Uh, so for everyone, today we are learning from Sean Hoyt about contracts. He's a VP of legal and commercial contracts at a technology company in Boston. And this episode will be viewed at www.discoveringthelaw.com. Sean, in one minute, what are your takeaways of the deal-making process that you make it sound so smoothly? You know, one thing I would say is that with contracts, contracts are really important, but ultimately what's most important is the relationship. And so the contract shouldn't end when it's signed. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I find is while you're negotiating the contract, if you act fairly and you act with integrity and you build relationships with the other party, then all of a sudden you've got a relationship that can serve to avoid disputes later on and to make sure that the business objective is successful. So don't view the contract as the end result. View the relationship and the long-term success of that partnership as the, as the outcome that you want. Great, Sean. Thank you very much. I believe we have run out of time. This is all we have. But um, we appreciate your coming over to talk to us about contracts. <laughs>